trusting God in troubled times, we took a look at the first four verses uh, or so last week of chapter 2. But there's a lot more to chapter 2 than just the first four verses. Um, and we're going to um, be taking a look at some of the themes from the um, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and following. Um, it is a, a dense passage. There's a lot there. And so um, I'm going to actually um, cover the themes of that um, chunk of Scripture, but I'm only going to read for you a few verses here and there. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5, and then skip to verse 14, and then read verses 18 and 19, and we'll, we'll talk um, about those particular verses this morning. So uh, I know some of you, in fact, there's one um, life group who's studying Habakkuk. So, Joe, your, your life group can make notes on the rest of it and hand them out, and everyone can be really clear on the rest of the passage. But I really wanted to focus on a few key themes this morning. And at the end of it, to get to some really, really good news, we're going to finish with some really good news when we talk about trusting God in troubled times. So let's hear God's word, beginning at verse 4 of chapter 2. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Then verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then down in verse 18. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is God's word to us this morning. Thanks be to God. The book of Habakkuk, as we've said, is not a common read, but it's a very practical read for us in our lives today. Because he begins by saying in chapter 1, How long, O Lord, are you going to... Are you going to turn a blind eye to all this evil and all this injustice? I mean, look around my life, God. How long do I have to endure this kind of evil? And God says to Habakkuk, I hear you, and I see all the evil and injustice. I'm going to deal with it by sending the Babylonians, a people of immense evil and immense justice. I'm going to use evil and injustice to deal with the evil and injustice. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that that you know, Habakkuk responds pretty much as we would. That doesn't sound like a good plan, God. That sounds really strange, really odd. And yet we talked about how his, his perspective was not God's perspective. And if you missed those sermon, uh, that sermon from a couple of weeks ago, you can certainly listen to it online. And God says, I'm going to send the Babylonians. And then in chapter 2, in, the, in the, the pieces that I read for you, but all of the rest of chapter 2, um, God gives a, a thumbnail sketch, as it were, of the evil and of the injustice of the Babylonian people. Kind of, he's saying, this is, this is what's coming. You think it's bad now? This is what's coming. Um, but don't worry, I have a plan. And so he gives this sketch of evil, and he, he makes a series of five woe statements. Now, woe in Scripture is a lot different than the woe we know now. You know, um, usually woe now is, you know, I'm riding a horse and can't figure out how to get it to stop. Woe. Um, but woe in Scripture is, is, a, is a very powerful word that God uses. 
saying, woe to you. Um, judgment is coming because of the evil and injustice I see. So he makes a number of woe statements to the Babylonian people. But I have a sneaking suspicion that um, as Habakkuk was reflecting on this, um, I have a sneaking suspicion that he began to realize that this is not just the Babylonian people. This is people in general. Woe statements. And God talks woe to, uh, woe to a lot of people involved in theft, involved in dishonest gain, involved in sexual immorality, even involved in environmental destruction. talks about um, Lebanon, the violence you have done to Lebanon in verse 17. Uh, most scholars um, equate Lebanon with um, with, with really the, the creation, the earth. Woe to you because of the evil and injustice that God sees. There's lots in there. This morning I want us to focus on two things, though. I want us to focus on the roots of the evil, and I want us to focus on the reality amidst the evil. The roots of the evil and the reality. First of all, the roots. As I say, this passage is really full of a lot of dark stuff. You know, a picture of the, the evidence of, and the evil in the Babylonian culture. But I want to bookend it. I'll leave the deeper study to you. But I want to bookend all of this picture of evil um, from at the beginning of our passage and at the end of the passage. That's why I read verses 4 and 5 and verses 18 and 19. I want to bookend it because it, it really highlights, I think, the roots of everything in the passage. The roots of all the evil in the passage are bookended at the beginning and the end. And the first root is verse 4. See, he is puffed up. And it's the root of pride. It's the root of pride. See, he is puffed up. Um, that's a biblical image of pride. And sometimes we, we even use those images. When someone's very proud of themselves, they say, oh, I'm pretty proud of myself. And we kind of stick our chest out. Um, there's, there's a bird that does that too. It gets all puffed up. I'm not sure which one it is. But um, that, that picture of getting all puffed up full of pride. It's one of the roots of the evil in, in the Babylonian culture, but very clearly in our own culture as well. It's becoming, um, I don't know whether it comes with more age or what, but it's becoming clearer and clearer to me um, the epidemic of pride in our culture where we puff ourselves up. Do you know what the mantra of a proud culture is? Here's the mantra of a proud culture. I know what's best for me. That's the mantra of a, of a proud culture. Hey, I don't care what anybody else says. I know what's best. And I know what's best in particular for me because I'm the most important thing. I know what's best. So there's a rejection of authority. There's a rejection of, um, of, of wisdom because I know what's best. I, I don't need some stupid book telling me. I, I don't, you know... I, I know what's best. I can help myself, right? I mean, I've said that in other sermons. It's amazing to me how large the self-help section in Chapter's bookstore is getting. If you haven't been there for a while, go there and go to the self-help section and see how big it is. That communicates two things to me. It communicates, one, that we are recognizing as a culture that we're in need of a lot of help. So there's more books being written on help. But self-help, because I know what's best for me. I can figure it out. Might need the help of a, you know, some guru in a book, but, but, but I can figure it out. I can help myself. I don't need anybody outside. As long as, as I can get a handle on certain things and, and get my, you know, my, 
I think positive thoughts and all those things, I can help myself because I know what's best for me. It's the mantra of a proud culture. It's not new. I mean, Scripture starts that way, right, with Adam and Eve? Here's the rules, Adam and Eve. God says, you know, I've got all this for you to enjoy, but I've got a little, a few parameters, a few bumpers that I'm putting around you to make sure that your life is safe. Um, so I don't want you eating of these trees. And what do they do with the help of the serpent? Well, I, I know what's best for me. I, I know God said that, but hey, I know what's best for me. So I'm going to do what I want to do, Right? Here's the thing about pride. Here's the thing about thinking we know what is best and focusing only on ourselves. And it's such a scriptural principle. Pride, that kind of pride, that kind of focus on ourselves leads to complete dissatisfaction. And if there's nothing else that we can see in our culture, it's, it's pride leading to dissatisfaction. Um, verse 5 continues on. Here's this puffed up person. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant. He's never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death, is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all of the peoples. Is that not a picture of our culture? Forget the Babylonians. Arrogant, never at rest, greedy as the grave, like death, never satisfied. It's just a picture of the, the, the proud culture that we are in. We are never satisfied, right? I mean, think about it. There's, we weren't satisfied with just radio. No, no, no. We've got something called a TV now. And please understand, I'm not railing against the television for those of you who are getting the wrong idea. I've got a TV at home. It's okay. But we weren't proud with just listening. Uh, hey, we, radio. we've got a TV now. We can actually see it. It's a little fuzzy, but we can even, we can even improve that. So it's, now it's clearer. But we're not just satisfied with that. It's black and white. The rest of the world isn't black and white. Let's develop color. Now you can watch it. But you know what? We're not satisfied with that because you've got, it's really inconvenient to have to get up off the couch every time you want to change the channel. So, hey, let's develop it so we can push a button and through the air you can change the channel. That's not big enough. The TVs are too, too small. We need, we need big screen TVs. So let's make ones that barely fit in a room. And, and let's, let's put it there and it makes it huge. Well, that's great, but they're just too big and bulky. Let's, I know, let's create flat screen TVs. Do you see? It's just, we're never satisfied. As a culture, this proud disposition leads to dissatisfaction. We're never at rest. Never satisfied. We always want and we need more. We need better. One author puts it this way. We, we're never satisfied. We want more all the time. And it's a cul-de-sac that we run around in as a culture. We never get out of it. Because what is best is a moving target, isn't it? There's always something better. There's always a better phone or a better TV or a better house, better job. And so it's always a moving target. And we're never satisfied. Because we're coming at it from this place of, hey, I know what's best. I know what's best for me. It doesn't end there. Because pride is only the one bookend. It's one of the roots of the evil of this society and of ours. But there's something far more sinister that pride leads to. And it's, it's that other bookend. It's at the end of the passage that we can see it. 
And it's the, it's, it's the sin of idolatry. Right? Uh, a culture that is wrapped up in itself, full of pride, dissatisfied as a result, is a culture that also leads um, to idolatry. Here's the thing. You and I were made to worship. We're created as beings that worship. It's in our DNA. We, we want to worship something. We want something outside of ourselves to worship, to give honor to. That's, that's innate in us. But when we allow pride to take over, pride, this focus on ourselves that we know best, pride causes us to set something up in place of God. After all, God's a bit of a killjoy. All these rules and all these things we've got to do. So I know what's best. I'll just set something else up. We'll give God a rest. Turn our back on him. We'll do something else. So we've got the situation of any culture, any society, any life that, that turns from God, that, that is not based on the glory and the grace of God and turns from that. A society that, that is no longer based on God's glory and God's grace will be based on something else. There will be a God replacement because we were created to worship something. And pride, I know what's best, causes us to, sit, to take something that's good and make it into the ultimate thing. And pride causes us to take something that's temporary and make it an absolute. Pride causes us to try to get something or someone else to be and to do and to give us what only God can. We try and craft a God replacement. It can be like in the passage where we carve things out of wood, make a little idol. But let's be honest, in our day and age, in our culture, it's much less of that and much more of the things around us that we try and use as a God replacement. Here's a really important teaching. You and I have core needs. We have the need to be loved we have the need to show love. We have the need to have purpose and meaning amongst other needs. And when we try and get those needs met outside of God, we create idols. We have a need for purpose and meaning and value in our lives. That's a God-given need that is designed to be met in God. God is the one who has created us, and he says, I can give you purpose and value and meaning. But when we say, hmm, you know, I think I know what's best for me. Thank you very much, God. And we turn from God and we say, you know what? I'm still in need of purpose and value and meaning because that's innate in me. I've rejected God, so I'm going to find it in other things. I'm going to try and get these other things to give me the purpose and the value and the meaning that were designed to be met in God. And so I'm going to turn to things like my job. And at some point, my job's not just my job. My job is my identity. It gives me my purpose and my value and my meaning. You've just set up an idol. It's not carved out of wood. It's a nine-to-five idol. When we try and get our core needs met outside of God, when we think we know best, it leads us down that road of idol worship. And then in a full circle, it leads to complete dissatisfaction. We find ourselves always needing more. The job's never enough. I need more. Because I'm trying to get my needs met outside of God. 
what does this have to do with troubled times? You know, we're talking about trusting God in troubled times. Well, I, I think part of it is we just need to step back. We need to step back and get honest and say, God, where has pride crept in? I mean, yes, there's a situation around me. It might just be the situation in our culture or it might be a particular situation in your life um, where it's, it's a trying time, you know, it's a troubled time. But I think part of what Habakkuk would say to us is don't just blame it on the Babylonians. <laughs> in many ways, he's saying, even you, Habakkuk, you step back. Where has pride crept in for you and for me? Where are we saying, you know what, God, I, I think I know what's best for me. Where has idolatry crept in? What core needs are we trying to get met outside of God? What idols have we set up? The roots. The root of pride and the root of idolatry. Well, the reality. What's the reality? In troubled times, we need some reality too. We need to step back and get honest about some of the roots of the evil, but we also need some encouragement. We need some hope. And so here it is in this brutal chapter, and it is a brutal chapter, there's, there's a couple of um, flashes of hope in the passage. These, and I'm going to give you two of them. These two flashes of hope just remind you and me, within the troubled times, of the reality. The first one is right at the very end, verse 20. After all this, but the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Within the troubled times, here's the first reality. God's sovereignty. We Presbyterians are big on that. The sovereignty of God. Despite what is going on in our culture, in our society, in our own lives, despite what's going on, there is a reality that is still in place. And it's the reality of what I started the service with from the book of Revelation the audio of the throne room of heaven, even as all this goes on, is holy, holy, holy. The Lamb is still on the throne. God remains on the throne in charge and in control. It may not look like it at times. It may not feel like it at times. We may have questions. We may have accusations of God. We may doubt God. And as we talked about in a previous sermon, God's, God can handle it all. But the fact remains, and we stand on what Scripture says, God is on his throne. That's the reality. God remains sovereign. He remains in his holy temple. He hasn't left his post. He remains sovereign. That's a flash of hope. Right in the midst of this brutality, right in the midst of this evil and injustice, right in the midst of yours, God just gives that reality. I'm on my throne. I'm in my temple. These other idols that you fashioned, there's no breath in them, but I am on my throne. It's a flash of hope. Here's a second flash of hope. Verse 14. Right in the middle of the passage, really. Almost exactly in the middle. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Within the troubled times, no matter how bad it gets, there is always the hope, there is always the hope of the coming of God's glory. Now, that's something that can just roll off our Christian tongues. We go, yeah, the glory of God. Uh, we've sung about God being glorious this morning. Uh, but here's the truth of the passage. God's glory will come. As the waters cover God's glory, the knowledge of the glory of God will come. 
and the earth will be filled with this. The truth of the passage is this, that we human beings search for glory in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways. And as a result, we find ourselves covered not with glory, but covered rather with shame. Look at verse 16. I didn't read it for you, but verse 16 says this, God speaking to the Babylonians, you will be filled with, the sh- with shame instead of glory. The opposite of being covered with glory is being covered with shame. That's not just the story of the Babylonians. That's my story and that's yours. We look for glory in all the wrong places and as a result we are covered with shame. And, and the woe statements that are in there are woe statements to you and to me. We're covered with shame. We deserve this shame. That's the point, one of the many points of the passage. Because of the evil and injustice, we deserve the shame that befalls us. But here's the good news. Here's where we land and here's where we end. And you've got you to stick with me for just a second as I'm going to read a couple of passages of Scripture, give you the good news, and then we're done. Okay, so there's where we are. But here's the good news to finish. Stick with me. Scripture teaches that God in Jesus Christ emptied himself when he came to earth. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, it says this about Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Some of you have done Bible studies on this, so you know this, but just in case you haven't, let me tell you. When it says that Jesus made himself nothing, it means that when God left his throne and came to earth, he emptied himself. There's been a lot of, a lot of scriptural um, and, and theological writing on what it means that God emptied himself. But one thing is for sure. God set aside at least a portion of his glory to come to earth so that he could stand and walk in our midst. He set aside his glory. And what did he do? Isaiah 53, verse 3. We're coming up on Good Friday very soon. It's a verse we read at Good Friday. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus came to earth, he set aside his glory and he took on our shame. Do you get that? In fact, we hid our face from him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says this, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Well, that's a lot of lingo. What is that saying? It, the point there is that in doing what Jesus did, he brought us to glory. Set aside his own glory, took on our shame, brought us to glory through what Jesus did. And then Romans eight seventeen seals it. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, get it? Here it is. In order that we may also share in his glory. Don't get lost in that. That's a powerful scriptural principle. So put it all together, all those passages together. Jesus set aside his glory and took on our shame. That we might. Take on his glory and share in it. 
That's a powerful thing. People of shame because of what we've done. And God took our shame. That's the good news. We read passages like this that talk about um, the, really the fallenness of, <clears throat> of humanity. And we can allow ourselves to be loaded down with guilt and shame. Oh, I've messed up so bad. Here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, God set aside his glory, took your shame from you. And through faith and trust in Jesus, your shame is removed and you get to be a a co-heir. You get to share in his glory. That's the good news. Free of shame, taking on the glory of God. The truth is that only um, true glory, God's glory, really satisfies us and fills us and lasts. That's the only glory And that kind of glory is ours through faith in Jesus. You know, coming up on Easter, perhaps we'll, I'll have Laura have us sing this on Good Friday, but it's the, the, the great new hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And one verse says this, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. That picture of the Father rejecting the Son because he had taken on our shame. As wounds which mar the chosen one, Bring many sons and daughters, that's you and I, to glory. This morning, Pope Fran- the new Pope, Pope Francis, gave his first uh, teaching from the window. I don't know what that's called, I can't remember. Um, but he spoke to the crowds. And this, this, just this morning, he said this. Um, he talked about the unfathomable capacity of God to pardon. That's what he talked about. The unfathomable capacity of God to pardon. What's he saying? The unfathomable capacity of the living God to take our shame and to put his glory in its place. Jesus bore my shame that I might share his glory. That's the flash of hope. That the, glory, the knowledge of the glory of God will one day fill the earth and through the prophet Habakkuk, that was being predicted in Jesus Christ. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It's a flash of hope. That's the reality. There's the root of a lot of evil in this passage, but the reality amidst all this trouble is that God is sovereign and the glory of God will come. Let me invite Al Ford. He's going to give a response before we close in a song this morning. He's going to give a response in prayer. Let's pray together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning, Lord God, and we, we do. We, we do remember the words from the, from the book of Habakkuk. Um, but, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is the flash of hope. This is the thing that we hold on to, Lord God. And so, you, so we give you all praise and honor this morning. You are the one that created the heavens and the earth. You are the one that created the universe. You are the one that created the world around us. And because you are the creator, you are our reality. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us your perspective, Lord God. Help us and remind us of how you you view the world. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the book of Habakkuk, for the words that were penned, these words that were written thousands of years ago, 
This message, Lord God, that we read in the scriptures is still relevant to us today. Help us, O Lord, to remember this not only um, as individuals, but help us, Lord God, to remember this as your church. Help us, Lord God, to be the body of Christ that cares about the things that you care about. Lord God, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Heavenly Father, this morning uh, in the sermon we heard about the mantra of a proud culture. We heard about how um, when we think of I know what's best for me will bring us into idolatry. Lord God, we are guilty of that, Lord, and we ask, Father, for forgiveness. And so, congregation, will you take a moment uh, in, in silent reflection, but also take a moment in confession as well. Mighty God, as we, we come, Lord God, as CPC, um, as we come as the church, Lord God, as we continue to move on in 2013, we ask that you would, you would be with us as a community. We ask, Lord God, that you would be with each and every one of us, that you would knock at the door of our hearts, that, you, that we would let you in. We pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit would take hold of our hearts and that you would transform us, Lord God, transform us Transform our hearts so that we no longer look towards the things of the world and yearn after them, but we would yearn to see, that we would want to see, Lord God, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We, are, we ask, Lord God, that you would renew our spirit daily, that, you would, that we would rely on uh, your strength and not our own. Our Heavenly Father, we look around and see the world around us, and we see just all the evil and uh, all the injustice around us, Lord God. And Heavenly Father, we pray that, um, that you would continue to encourage us and to hope for these better days. Father, remind us that you have set up your church here on earth, and it's because you saw the world around us, you saw how messed up we are. And so you placed, you, you, you placed your Son here on earth to come and take away uh, our sins to, um, so that you, your glory would be here on earth. Father, you have built your church, Lord God, to call out to this broken world for healing, for redemption, and for reconciliation. Jesus said when he was here on earth that the church is to be the light of the world. Jesus said that we are to be a lamp on a hill, and because of it, the church should be the one thing, the one thing that attracts the lost people in a dark world. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to be that light in the world, that you would help us to be that light in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, in the city of Coquitlam. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would continue to remind us through your scriptures, through your word, that Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope. It is what you have done for us on the cross. It is what you have experienced as the ultimate injustice in this world. It's because of what you have done for us that you have brought justice to this world. And because of this, we have this gospel. Help us to never be ashamed. Help us to continue to share that good news. Help us to continue to share that gospel so that everybody would know. 
you are our first love passion. And because of this, we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to step out and take risks. Help us, Lord God, to go and share this reality to the world. And so we pray for these things in your name. Amen. That's a beautiful mantra to leave with. Jesus, would you be the center? I'm going to give Jesus the last word this morning from Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, then, let your light shine before men and women, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. My friends, as you go to do just that, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on you this day, this week, and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.